Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, the beginning of that particular chapter in Ephesians 4. And as you're flipping pages, finding it in your Bible, I want you to think about an organization you might be familiar with. It's an organization started in the mid-90s called Leave No Trace. And it was incorporated uh, for a particular mission to protect and to preserve outdoor spaces, God's created beauty. And it, it grew out of this increasing consumer approach to much of God's created beauty in our country. And so it sought to promote an ethic of responsibility, an ethic of preservation for these spaces. And if you've ever been to a a national park, a a state park, probably any park for that matter, you might have seen a sign with the principles of leave no trace listed on them. And it was perhaps summed up best by a, a slogan they used for a good long time, take only pictures leave only footprints. And the idea being enjoy the space, enjoy the sights, the smells, the sounds, the scenery, take it all in, but leave no lasting mark. Don't change a thing. Leave it exactly as you found it, as if you were never there. What does that have to do with Ephesians 4? See, in the first three chapters of the letter, Paul gives us this sweeping overview of God's eternal cosmic plan, and it leads him to this burst of praise. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. That would have been a beautiful, wonderful final spot to end his letter on. Wrap it up right there. But he doesn't. He keeps going. We're only halfway through, in fact. So now what? Where do we go from here? If you got the first half of the letter, it's full of these wonderful indicatives telling us these truths of what God has done for us in and through Christ Jesus. And now we get to the second half of the letter, and it's full of imperatives telling us where we go from here. Paul giving us instructions for what comes next. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he takes us on a walk. But not just a, a stroll through a park, not a hike in the woods. It's a walk with this eternal cosmic plan of God in mind. And it's a walk we can't do alone. It's a call to the church not to leave no trace, but to leave every trace. It's a call on the people of God not to leave everything unchanged, but to change everything. And so let's read together now from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And consider how, according to God's perfect plan, together we walk, leaving every trace. This is Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended 
into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So the Apostle Paul, he's invited us out on a walk. Therefore, I urge you to walk. And this is one of his favorite words in the letter, using it seven times, really is something of an organizing principle of the whole letter. The first two he uses to establish two different types of walks. The first one is found back in uh, the beginning of chapter two. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The second then is in verse 10, a little bit later, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we used to walk this way, now we walk that way. We used to walk in sin, now we walk in good works. The difference, the change, what happens is that by God's grace, we're made alive together with Christ, moving us from here to there. And then Paul takes this idea of walk, and he organizes the rest of his letter with this word. You have verse 14 that we just read, walk in a manner worthy. 4.17, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. 5.2, walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. 5.15, look carefully how you walk. And so each of these are an explanation, an expansion upon this idea back in 1.10 of walking in good works. And so we're headed out on a walk together. Because the first way we leave every trace as a church is by walking together. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And we'll come back to that word worthy in a moment. Because in order to understand how we walk worthy of the calling, we have to first understand the calling itself. What is this calling to which we have been called. Well, Paul uses this idea of calling throughout many of his other letters, really as a, a shorthand for God's grace of electing people unto salvation. It was a way for him to summarize in just one little word everything he said back in one four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption. You see that in Romans 9, 11. He's talking about uh, God's divine election of Jacob. And Paul says, before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. So he calls an election. He connects these two in nine. Well, Romans 8.30 says that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. So part of our calling here that in Ephesians 4 is God's call, his sovereign call of electing us unto salvation, of bringing us under the lordship of Christ through salvation and into God's eternal cosmic plan. And even looking here in Ephesians, we look a little earlier in 1.16. He says, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he's called us to salvation. Now he's calling us to, to a hope. What's he got in mind here? Because hope, it's this idea in the Bible of a, a confident looking forward to something. It's a, a peering behind the curtain, a looking into the future through God's eyes to see what is definitely coming. So this isn't wishing on a star kind of hope. This is a, a confident rooted hope, knowing what is going to happen. So what are we confidently looking forward to see? I think Paul is referencing this big plan of God. Look at one nine. He says, The Father is making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. What's that plan? It's to unite all things in him, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so we have heaven and we have earth. We have two different realms representing the totality of creation. So everything in all of creation fits in one of these two places. And God's plan is to unite them together perfectly in Christ. Heaven and earth becoming one, God's glory covering all of it, his rule and his reign being perfectly known throughout all of it. All things falling into perfect order, perfect subjection to their one creator and their one Lord. That's the hope he's calling us to. That's the confident future that's coming. And so the, the calling Paul has in mind when he says walk worthy of it is both our election unto salvation in the end. So it's the beginning and the end. It's the entirety of it. It's God's entire plan of salvation. That is what we've been called to. And that's what Paul is saying. Walk worthy of this plan. Consistent. That's the idea of worthy. Walking consistent with our newfound place in God's plan. I love this idea of walk because there's, there's an ordinariness to it, right? There's a continuousness to it. This is a Walking is an everyday, normal, somewhat boring part of our lives. And so it's an ordinary action by means of something extraordinary happening that Paul's presenting to us. He's telling us that this plan affects all of life, the big stuff and the very most mundane things that we do. He says, walk worthy of that calling. And so if we read the rest of Ephesians, we can see that Walking worthy can't mean worthy of having received this calling. Because he said, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. By nature, children of wrath. So Paul isn't saying be worthy of having received God's grace. 
He's saying, in light of God's grace, walk worthy. You can't read Ephesians and think that in any way, Paul is saying, walk in such a way to repay God for what he's done, or walk in such a way as to merit what God has given you, or walk in such a way as to to prove it was a good idea to save you. No, all of it grace. We were dead and rotting. By grace, we've been made alive with Christ. And so this idea of worthy should be better understood as a, a fittedness. Walk in a way that is fitted to or, or matches or is consistent with your calling. All of life, every moment, live in a way that's worthy of or consistent with God's eternal plan. You know, when my wife and I, when we go on a walk, the first thing we have to do is agree on the purpose, the plan for our walk. Is this a casual, conversational stroll? Are we taking in the sights? Is this a beach walk? Are we exercising? Because if we don't agree on the goal, if we don't agree on the plan, we usually have different plans. Her plan's usually a little different than mine, mine different than hers, and we suddenly find ourselves frustrated because we're not walking according to the plan of the other person. Paul's saying, from here on out, walk in a manner worthy of this plan, a manner consistent to the plan that God has for us. And everything Paul says from here on out fits under this heading. The entirety of the biblical ethic for Christians could simply fall under this one category. Because the idea isn't, here's what Christians can do and what Christians can't do. It's saying, how do our lives best proclaim the truth that all things are being united under the lordship of Christ. And so in every scenario Paul gives us, in all the unforeseeable ones that we experience, that Paul had no way of knowing we would experience, we could simply ask, how do I walk in a manner worthy of my calling? Which, truth, which choice is most consistent with the fact that God is uniting all things in Christ? Which choice best displays the grace of God in Christ? And so the whole rest of the letter, uh, putting away falsehood, Honoring masters, fleeing sexual immorality, children, children obeying parents, husbands and wives relating to one another. All of it, in every scenario. Walk consistent, walk worthy of this calling. Walk worthy of your election. Walk worthy of your promised future hope. And we see for Paul, walking worthy of his calling took him straight behind bars. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. And he's chained, he's chained to the wall. But every shackled step is actually a step of worthiness for the glory of Christ. That's why he says in other places, don't be ashamed of my chains. I'm not ashamed of my chains because his chains were worthy of the calling. And so for Paul, it was worth it all. All of it. And so we walk together, church, worthy of the calling that we've been called to. And with great urgency, Paul tells us that on this walk, we have to stay together. Stay together on this walk. And if you're a parent of kids, you know that every call to stay together is an urgent call to stay together. You know, when I let my kids walk down the street to a friend's house, if I'm not going with them, or if my wife isn't going with them, we say, stay together. 
there's some other spots they explore in our neighborhood. If they're riding their bikes, if they're heading down to the creek, we say, play, or excuse me, stay together. Why? It's because apart from that reminder, apart from telling them to stay together, there's something that's going to pull them apart. They're going to get distracted. They're going to lose sight of one another. And so we're saying stay together for help of one another. Likewise, there's a, a danger lurking for us, pulling us apart here. But Paul's, Paul's call to stay together isn't really so much about safety. He's got something much bigger in mind, something much grander in mind. See, our, our staying together, it's going to show the world a, a spectacular truth about our Lord. Look at verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And so he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. And he calls it unity of the Spirit to first show us that this is not something that we have done. And he tells us to maintain it in order to double down on that truth. The unity has come from outside of us. The unity that Paul's talking about, it's a unity that he described Back in chapter 2. So look at, look at 2 verse 11 with me for just a moment. Because in this section, Paul's going to lay out a, another fundamental reality for us. He says there are only two groups, Jews and Gentiles. So in the same way we had heavens and earth and everything fits within those two categories, we have Jews and Gentiles. And in the same way that God is uniting heaven and earth together in Christ God has united Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. So everyone throughout history, God bringing them together under Christ's reign. You've got the Jews, this one group to whom the covenant of the promise was given. Everything we've been reading about in Leviticus uh, over the last many months, this was given to the people of Israel, to the Jews. And then you've got everyone else, the Gentiles, People who were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant, having no hope without God in the world. It's a pretty bleak scenario. But look, at, look at verse 13 there, 2.13. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So on the cross, as Jesus was busy being killed, he was busy killing the hostility between us, reconciling us both 
to God, giving us peace with God and peace with one another. He himself is our peace. So there are not two groups in Christ, the the Jews and the Gentiles, but there is one new man in place of the two. A new creation, a new creation people, a new covenant people were born on the cross in Christ Jesus. This is part of why in other places we see Paul saying there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. He's saying in Christ we've all been united as one perfect body. And this is what leads Paul back in our section in chapter 4 to say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's, he's rooting our unity in these truths that there's not two bodies in Christ, but one. There's one Holy Spirit given to every believer, one hope, one promised future of our calling. Not one faith, one plan of salvation for the Jews, one plan of salvation for the Gentiles. Not two fathers, but one. And if you were to take a minute and count, and maybe some of you did, Paul uses the word, the word one seven times. That's not an accident. Because in Paul's world, seven would have been a number that, that signified perfection or completion. So Paul's seven ones are meant to, to signify, to teach us the complete, perfect unity in Christ. We are already one. That's why Paul doesn't say attain the unity. He says maintain it. You already have it. Because in Christ, God has done the impossible. He reconciled the irreconcilable. He united that which can be united. He took children of wrath, all of us, and united us to the Father. He took us, people among whom there was hostility, and he tore that wall down. We've been united to God in Christ, and so the church is the visible pattern of what God is cosmically doing. He's uniting heaven and earth, everything under Christ, and he's united us as a pattern to show the world what he is doing. More than that, as we maintain this unity, we're the proof that he can and he will do this. His purposes will be accomplished. We saw back at the beginning of the letter that the Father has seated the Son above every rule and authority, every power and dominion, put all things under his feet, all of it under the feet of Christ. And so he, he holds up this one united body, the church, and he says this is the pattern. This is the proof that what I am doing will happen. And so as we stay together, we hold up the supremacy of Christ. We hold up the work that he is doing for his glory. And he says, be eager to maintain this. The idea of guarding it, watch out for it, keep on the lookout, guard this precious gift that you've been given because you can't obtain it We can't break it. We can lose our experience of it, certainly. We can treat it as invaluable. We can walk in such a way that that teaches the opposite message to the world around us. It's 
So Paul says, be eager to guard this unity. And he tells us how. He says, guard it by, by remembering who you are. We stay together, we stay united as we remember that we are each and all the people who have received grace. And so our basic disposition toward one another is grace. This is the lens through which we look at each other. He says, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, with all bearing with one another in love. These things that elsewhere we see Paul is describing as fruits of the Spirit. Outworking of the reality that our, our hearts have been filled with the Holy Spirit. This new covenant people, the law written on our hearts. This is what a life united to Christ under the new covenant looks like. And at first glance, this is something of a a relatively easy list. Humility and gentleness are easy with people we generally like, with people we get along with, and especially with people who like us. I can be real humble and gentle with people who like me. Patiently bearing with someone you love or admire is pretty easy. This is why premarital counseling is sometimes a really funny experience. When you talk about arguing and challenges in marriage to a couple who desperately admire one another, they look at you cross-eyed because it's pretty easy for them right now. We can sort of do this stuff in our own strength, right? But the, the language Paul is, is using, this idea of humility, gentleness, patiently bearing with one another in love, Paul means something more like patiently tolerating the really difficult people. That's a lot harder. Because we can summon enough strength in ourselves to deal with the slight annoyances of life. But only a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, that's been united to Christ, as a result of fruit of the Spirit, can we be long-suffering for the really difficult people around us. That person has been united to you in Christ. Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility between you. So who are you to rebuild it? And this is especially true when we remember that somewhere, maybe even in this room, maybe sitting really close to you right now, is somebody thinking about you. You're reading this thinking about somebody else that you have to patiently endure. And somebody's reading it thinking about you. But if we understand the grace that God has given us, changing us from a, a child of wrath to an adopted son of God, if we truly see ourselves in light of the, the redemption and the forgiveness that Paul says we have found in Christ, a heart that sees itself that clear, endless supply of forbearance for even the most difficult brother or sister in Christ. Because if we truly understand the grace that is ours in Christ, how can our attitude in the presence of God and of his people be anything but gracious and long-suffering? So we don't assume the worst of all motives in each other. We forgive quickly. We confess often. We don't hold grudges. We encourage. We edify one another. We listen well when we've hurt or sinned against one another. We don't give up on each other. We endure one another. Not begrudgingly, but out of love for each other. 
and understanding that despite and in spite of all of these struggles, we've been united in Christ through the perfect blood of Christ. This unity was perfectly accomplished by the cross. And Paul isn't saying that this unity comes at the expense of truth, at the expense of the gospel. We can remember that grace and, and justice, grace and truth, he's perfectly met at the cross. And so the reconciliation of forbearance for one another and, and truth, that, that reconciliation is our struggle, not the Lord's. But man, that's challenging. But as we struggle in this together, we're leaving every trace of what God is doing through us. Because in this struggle of staying together, serving one another in humility, our Savior has given us a gift, something for the road. Look with me at verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So through this gift, we, we leave every trace of God's cosmic plan as we grow together. Let's look at this in some smaller parts, because there's a little bit of confusing language in what Paul is doing. So first, who, who gets this gift? Whose party is this? It says grace was given to each of us. So we all get it. Every believer, every member of this new humanity in Christ, all of us get a gift but we don't all get the same gift. He says, grace was given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. So differing amounts of the gift for differing people, but nobody goes home empty-handed. And we see here, it's pretty plain, that Christ is the giver of the gift. But Paul does something a little bit unique to help us understand what this gift is. He takes us back to Psalm 68. I'm not going to read the entirety of it. I just want to pull out a few verses to try and show us what Paul's doing here. This is Psalms, Psalm 68, verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Verse 3. The righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. The so enemies flee, the righteous joyful. Verse 11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The king of the armies, they flee, they flee. The enemies are running. Verse 17, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men. Verse 32, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. 
It's what's happening in Psalm 68. The, the Lord here is pictured as a, a conquering king who's gone out, he's destroyed his enemies. They flee now before him. And as he returns to Sinai, the place of his presence, he's got a host of captives, a train of spoils of war behind him. The people are singing tribute, singing praise, singing glory to their conquering, returning king. And it says he gives gifts then to the people. He gives power and he gives strength to his people. Remember those two words, power and strength. We're going to come back to them in a minute. Back here and back in Ephesians now. Let me read this again. He says, But grace was given to each one of us, all of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul's saying, Because Christ has given this gift, we know that Psalm 68 was written about Christ, so that Christ might fulfill it. And so Paul's not twisting Uh, proof texting, repurposing scripture here. He's showing us that in light of what we know Christ has done, we can now see that Psalm 68 was written for the fulfillment in Christ. In Ephesians, we see Christ seated above every rule and authority, every power and dominion. So Christ has won decisive victory over his enemies. The one who descended from heaven to earth, from one realm to the other. He became incarnate. He dwelt among us. That's the same one who ascended to the heavens, our other realm. So again, Paul's showing us how it's Christ who's connecting, who's uniting these things in himself. Paul's saying Christ came from heaven, defeated his enemies. We sang it a little bit ago. Death has been defeated. And he ascended back into heaven. And as he went, he gave a gift to all of us. Not gifts, not plural, singular, a gift. Paul isn't talking here about spiritual gifts. There's other passages where we, where we learn about that. Paul is saying that he gave us a gift. And he says it's, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Five different roles connected by one thing and thus constituting one gift to all of us. These are all men who proclaim God's word. Five different roles, all proclaimers of God's word. Apostles and prophets, these are the ones who Paul said are the foundation upon which the household of God was built with Christ himself as the cornerstone. Christ being the one upon whom the other blocks are measured and, and oriented. The foundation, it's been laid, it's been completed. It's part of why we say these two offices, apostles and prophets, don't exist to this day. But we have the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, continuing to be the gift given to each of us. Why? Why'd God give us this gift? Well, it's a little tricky again here, but I think to help us out, I think the, the King James Version gets the translation a little bit cleaner a little bit clearer, better connecting the the subject and the verb of the sentence here. So in that it says, Christ gave this gift for the perfecting of the saints. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, so on. For the perfecting of the saints. He gave the gift for the work of the ministry. He gave the gift for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
So it's the, these word offices are the ones doing each of these actions. If I could kind of paraphrase and maybe put it in context for us, he's saying the ascended Christ gave to us, to his people, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He gave them to us to train us, to serve us, to build us up. So these aren't men who lord over us. They're men who serve the body of Christ as servants of Christ. And their service has a specific end in mind. Remember those words from Psalm 68? It says he gave power and he gave strength to his people. So our victorious king out of the spoils of his battle has given the gift of men who are called to serve the church by proclaiming the word for the sake of empowering and strengthening us through the word of God. And everybody, all of us, we all get this to varying degrees. I mean, after all, some, some people got Paul. Some were alive and actually received this letter. Some get Spurgeon, prince of preachers. Some Calvin, some Piper. This morning, y'all got me. I'll let you measure the grace in that one. But can I also say nothing is really humbled or caused me to look at my own heart as much as this passage, as seeing myself and my fellow pastors in light of this text. Because Christ has given your pastors to you, to us. Every pastor needs pastors to strengthen and empower us by his word. And that is a frighteningly awesome task. It's no small task to bring the word of God to bear on, on our joys, on our suffering, on our sin, whether it's from the pulpit or in a counseling room, whether it's teaching an elective or it's a conversation over coffee. And so even leave this week praying for your pastors. There's 16 of us. Pray for us. I think maybe that's why later Paul says, if you aspire to the office of elder, you, you desire a noble thing. This is a big thing God has called these men to. Then you also got James saying, you know, maybe not many of you should be teachers. It's our role it's, as pastors is to, to lead, to serve, to build up, to strengthen the people of God through the proclamation of God's word. That's our job. We see in verse 13 that this gift continues until, so we've got a time frame in mind. How long do we have to keep doing this job? Not very long. Only until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Three kind of stacked phrases here giving us a, a time frame for how long this continues. Until we all, each and every one of us, attain unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So previously we were to maintain unity, to guard something we've already been given. And now we attain something, we pursue or, or try to gain something we don't yet have. And he describes it as unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he lists these things together because they're, they're connected, but I think they're a little bit different. I really like the way another one of God's grace to us, John Piper, 
He describes this as unity of knowledge as truth understood and unity of the faith as truth embraced. A common treasury of knowledge and a common treasuring of that knowledge. Submission by all of us to the word of God until we attain a united treasuring of the one truth of God. That's what maturity in Christ looks like. We've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. Because we're still children. And I love that Paul includes himself in that. Did you notice that? He says, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Paul himself is a, a child, and who am I to put myself in a different category? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says we're children now, easily tossed about by cunning, crafty, deceitful teaching. And notice too, it's children in the plural. We're all together children. And this is contrasted with maturity. What Paul says is the mature man, singular. So plural children, singular man. As we grow in Christ, as we each mature in Christ, we become one. Paul is connecting our growth back to the unity of the body. So he says, stay alone, and you choose to stay an infant. Which means there's no such thing as a maturing or mature believer who lives apart from the body of Christ. It doesn't exist. That also means we shouldn't be shocked by the presence of spiritual children in the church because we're all children. You wouldn't be shocked to walk back into the nursery wing and find babies. We shouldn't be walked to fa- shocked to walk into the church and find spiritual children. That's why our bar for membership is baptized believer, not spiritual maturity. At the same time, Paul says we, we don't put up with spiritual maturity. But it's that, that children lack wisdom, they lack discernment, they lack stability. So we gather together, maybe even weekly, plant our feet firmly on the truth of God's word, to have our lives transformed as we learn, as we grow under the teaching of God's word. Paul is looking at us and lovingly say, grow, grow up. This gift from Christ to the ministry of the teaching is that way we might mature together. And we do this, he says, in love. We do this together, rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so this is a a contrast. We have the deceitful teachers. They taught truth in crafty, deceitful, deceptive, divisive ways. We teach truth in loving ways. It's all the difference in the world. It says we grow up as we speak the truth in love. This is the whole body speaking the truth together in love. This is not a work just for pastors. So the body isn't just receiving and growing. You're not a mere passive recipient of this. He says we all sit under the word of God. And in turn, we look to one another and speak truth in love. 
And from there, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint and ligament, is growing together and builds itself up. What is this body being built into? He says we're growing into maturity, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we are growing up as a body into our head to conform to his likeness, to completely look like him, to be connected to him, to be led by him, to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when we put this all together, what, what's Paul doing in this passage? He says we've been united in Christ, fellow citizens, members of one household. We maintain this unity as we grow together, as we speak the truth in love, as we submit ourselves, placing ourselves under the word of God, as our hearts are transformed by the gospel, giving us a basic disposition of grace toward one another, treasuring this one truth of God's word together. That's what Paul described in chapter 3 as being, he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known according to his eternal cosmic plan to unite all things in Christ. Through the church, God's plan to unite all things in Christ is being made known. Through the church, God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ is being accomplished. So as we walk together, as we stay united together, as we grow together, we put on display the fullness of Christ, the supremacy of our Savior in all things, leaving every trace of his power and his plan to unite all things in himself. Leave no trace. It's a great plan for a park. It's a terrible plan for the church. Our call is to leave a permanent mark on the world displaying the supremacy of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. God, you loved us in such a way to give us your Son, to call us unto yourself through him, to save us through him. It's the very one who descended and dwelt among us is the one who ascended and who now reigns over all. God, we thank you for the good gift of your word. You have not left us alone. You've given us your spirit, and you have not left us alone. You have given us your word. So unite us in this church in these things. Unite us with other churches we love and know in this area and around the world. God, that together we might proclaim the manifold wisdom, the unsearchable riches of Christ. God, what a gift and a grace that you have called us to this. Thank you, Lord, that it's you who has united us. It is you, ultimately, who nourishes us, and it's you we grow into because it's you we glorify. It's you who receives all the glory, not us. And so be glorified in us, Lord, we pray. Amen.